Say hello and welcome to Resistance Radio. I'm John Kane, your host. Regan DeLoggins will be along with us as well. And <laughs> hey, July 1st is considered Canada Day, although it's being canceled in many places. <clears throat> and of course, um, uh, the 4th of July in the U.S. is their, one of their big national holidays. It's their Independence Day. So I asked the question, to what to uh, what to the native person is the 4th of July and Canada Day I mean what do those holidays represent to us and and of course I'm I'm taking off on uh, Frederick Douglass's address um, in Rochester upstate New York um, in 1852 uh, what to the slave is the 4th of July and he he pretty much went went through it and called out the hypocrisy of a day being celebrated as Independence Day while slavery still persisted. Excuse me. So, I mean, and of course, Native people uh, were enslaved as well. And while slavery may be technically a thing of the past, we are still living uh, as very much an oppressed people. And, you know, some of that oppression, we, we talked about, Last week, uh, Regan and I talked about the residential school issue and these the ongoing um, discoveries of uh, of, ba- of buried children unmarked in unmarked graves and mass graves and that kind of thing. And we want to touch on that a little bit more. Uh, I'm sitting here for those of you who are watching on Facebook Live um, or. At watching it after the fact, I'm wearing my orange shirt in uh, in commemoration and in support of uh, residential school victims and survivors. Um, and the shirts and outfits are being worn in defiance of uh, Canada Day, a day that 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 Canada wants to celebrate. And we're saying, how can you celebrate? How can you? How dare you celebrate in the midst of these discoveries of? Hundreds and and now we're over. We're talking now. We're getting closer to thousands in the discoveries. Now we know there are thousands of uh, of children who died in these schools. Many thousands of children who died in these schools. And so we're gonna we're gonna revisit a little bit of what we didn't completely cover last week, um, as we were talking about the United States entering into you know discussions and and plannings for some sort of. Uh, truth reveal, I guess. You know, I don't know if they're going to call it a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. They're actually calling it something else that if you use the uh, an acronym or the acronym, I'm sorry, <clears throat> it sounds like FIBSI. Um, so <laughs> we'll discuss that. Regan, are you with us yet? I am. I'm here and I hope y'all can hear me okay. You sound great, Regan. Um, look, we, we, I know you and I both were, um, Look, we were really into last week's show, and part of it is the is the is the emotions that are triggered by this constant, you know, news cycle, giving us more information about <clears throat> discoveries of of children buried at these residential schools. And and as we both said, as long as they keep looking, they're going to keep finding because we know that it was a pervasive act. Um, and and you and I were were fairly skeptical, if not outright critical, of um, some of the enthusiasm that 
Deb Haaland has garnered from, you know, quote unquote, Indian country. And, and part of it is is even less about her than than perhaps our, our amnesia or, or short term memory associated with who Biden is. You know, and, you know, I I I, I have to mention that the Obama Biden administration does not have a great track record. I mean, and, and if you want to talk about transparency and accountability, I all I can do is bring up one thing illustrates this as much as anything. And, and I got to bring up the Cabell suit. You know, for those of you who aren't familiar, um, Eloise Cabell launched a, a class action suit, what it would amount to, against the, the United States and the Interior Department in particular, the, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, for you know, a whole list of, you know, gross mismanagement activities associated with with um, individual Indian monies accounts, the accounting of of native assets by some estimates. In fact, Arthur Anderson was once <laughs> brought in to try to do some level of audit. And they told him, you can't. You guys have destroyed so many records. And the early indications are that the United States has squandered, lost, or, you know, stolen as much as 40 to $100 billion worth of Native assets in terms of mismanaging assets, you know, giving away, you know, uh, leases, um, not accounting for for lands lands that were being sold that were not legitimately, uh, you know, able to to be sold. You know, again, forty to a hundred billion dollars. And while the previous administration, the Bush administration, was already talking about trying to do a settlement in the tens of billions of dollars. Obama Biden, they negotiated and pushed through a settlement for four billion dollars. That's I mean, that's pennies on the dollar. And and that, to make matters worse, the lion's share of that $4 billion didn't ever go to Native people. It actually went to white landowners, and I call them landowners, but they re- weren't really landowners. They were, they were white landowners being compensated for lands that they were illegally occupying and, and now had to, to give up. So it is... I mean, it is absolute, it's an absolute travesty. And, yeah. you know, it, 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 the sad part is that, that, you know, Cabell and others, you know, work so hard on this. And then, you know, Native people were forced to make a choice on accepting this settlement, which really represented, you know, less than $2,000 per per person that was involved in the suit. Um, and, and closer to $1,000 uh, to accept this payment and forever um, extinguish any future claims associated with it or to not accept it and, and to defy this this the settlement, um, whether it's in the hopes of, of one day getting real justice or just saying, hell no, you're not paying me off on this. But I mean, how do you ignore that that's Obama Biden and now pretend because he what placed Deb Haaland in the Interior Department that everything's okay? Well, I want to back up a little bit just so in case folks are unaware of this um, of this class action lawsuit, um, which has been has been renamed a number of times as it's kind of grown, um, which is Cobell versus Salazar. But ori- originally it was. Um, I think it was Cobell versus Norton and Babbitt is how it started. And it's just, as you said, it was a class action lawsuit 
um, brought forward by um, Eloise Cabell, who is uh, part of the Blackfeet Nation, um, and a number of other indigenous uh, folks as well. And it started in 1996, and it was specifically against two departments of the U.S. government, one which is the Department of the Interior, and the other is the Department of Treasury, specifically calling uh, accountability for mismanaged um, Indian trust funds. And as John said, it was settled in 2009. Um, and the intention was that, or I guess what the claim was, that plaintiffs claimed that, they, that the U.S. government had incorrectly accounted for uh, the income from the Indian trust assets, which are legally owned by the Department of the Interior. So that's why it's a, um, that's why it, the, the suit covered two departments. One, as I said previously, being the Department of Treasury and the other being the Department of the Interior. And, um, and also, as John said, the case was settled for less than four, uh, for four billion. It was 3.4 uh, 3. billion in 2009. And of that, 1.4 were allocated to the plaintiffs, um, so spread out between all of them. Um, and then 2 billion was allocated for the quote, repurchase of fractionated land interests from those distributed under the Dawes Act. And um, so so as, as John said, all of this is a really important case in terms of understanding that uh, indigenous uh, or rather Indian trust, uh, Indian trust funds, as they're called, were mismanaged by the federal government purposefully uh, withholding money to, that would go into reservations um, and go into communities to provide um, either, uh, it was specifically to be used for communal use, uh, tribal reservations for communal use. So um, we know in the past that uh, Oh, oh, and something to add to this case, which is really interesting, was that part of the, the um, I guess, agreement was to create an educational scholarship fund uh, named after the plaintiff, Eloise Cabell, um, which I think is really an, an interesting uh, an interesting way to, to, I guess, try to make restitutions to the community. However, the reason that this is such an important case is because, as John said, this was under the Biden, uh, well, the Obama-Biden administration in which, um, oh, and I forgot to, I forgot the most important part of all of this is that, okay, so the case was settled at 3.4 billion, but the figure, the disputed case, the amount in which um, that had been uh, pur purposefully uh, I guess misnegotiated was $176 billion. So out of the $176 billion that were incorrectly accounted for and mismanaged, only 3.4 and uh, were, uh, I guess, were, it was as much as it was settled for, and only 1.4 or less than 1.4 went back into community. So I think it's really important. Well, okay, to let me let me jump in just a amount, second if, if I could. The amount was the amount was originally a hundred and seventy-six billion dollars that were misaccounted for. So I think that's a really important thing for folks to understand that the settlement was an absurd, an absurdly small amount in considering the gross neglect of the original amount of funds. Well, and and misaccounting is you know it's it's an interesting way to uh, to characterize it because some of this is just lost assets i mean it's not yeah. just about 
you know, you know, uh, missing a decimal point. We're talking about assets that are gone. I mean, and and it actually went beyond the trust funds because there was also an incredible um, mishandling of the names on of of who were supposed to be getting uh, lease income. I mean, which leases were whose? Whose property was whose? I mean, part of what uh, what Eloise Cabell had was trying to pursue was was where were her oil leases what what where were these locations i mean and as she started delving into some of this she realized that that the the so-called indian agents and and those were responsible couldn't even identify whose you know whether it's you know head rights to a well or whether it was grazing leases whatever it was whose leases went to who they were just kind of cutting checks, which were oftentimes pennies on the dollar, if they mm-hmm. cut them at all. I mean, it was just it was such gross mismanagement that that it was, you know, we're talking about criminal here. We aren't just talking about, you know, a mistake. We are talking about not just intentional cover up, but intentional cover up on top of intentional cover up, because part of the reason that, uh, you know, this this famed accounting firm, Arthur Anderson, couldn't find, uh, could not do a, a forensic audit was because the the Interior Department shredded documents. They destroyed documents. They, yeah, they said some records were burned in various places and that kind of stuff uh, unintentionally. But th- there was no question. In fact, the Interior Department was held in contempt of court for refusing to 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 produce information or any kind of reasonable. Uh, excuse for not being able to produce that information. It's it is really much more devious than than an accounting error. I also want folks to understand that out of the four, the three point four billion dollar settlement, um, and out of the one point four of that that went back into community, and I'm putting that all in quotes, that um, for, in order to cover all of the claimants, that's still. That 1.4 was spread out between, I, I believe it's 260,000 people. Yeah. It might even be more than that. I think it actually, um, I had the article pulled up, but I can't find it. But we're talking about, so this is, you know, this is a small, this is not like, a, a, you know, it's not like $1.4 billion went to a community or, uh, you know, it, it went to a number of people, 260,000 people, um, so it's just really the the settlement was really just a kind of a joke. Um, it was a pit. So yeah, it was, p- it was pathetic. Exactly, you know, and of course, um, you know, uh, Obama is the one who signed the legislation that authorized the government to fund this final version of the three point four billion dollar settlement back in uh, twenty ten. Um, so we know that the administration. I mean, obviously, Obama signed it. But, you know, the the federal government and administration at the time participated in this in this absurd settlement. Um, so I, I think it's just I want people to understand that it's not like four billion dollars went back to the indigenous communities or that four billion dollars went back to one specific community. Um, the settlement was for three point four and one point four of that went to community and one point four of that was spread out between two hundred and sixty thousand people. Yeah, and 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 I and the reason I bring this up is because anytime somebody starts talking about, well, what would be a fair way to deal with this? None of us anticipate a fair way of dealing with this stuff. I mean, I mean, you know, look at look at the Navajo suit that was uh, settled a, f- a few years back about how how much they were screwed out of uh, uranium um, income when uranium was being you know 
extracted from their territories. I mean, and every time these numbers all sound big. I mean, when you when you talk about, you know, $250 million or you talk about $4 billion, but when you compare it to $176 billion, four is not very much. And, you know, and so you know, whether we're talking about checks being written, you know, to, to individuals for $1,000 or whatever else, look, I, I can't begrudge a Native person for taking that settlement. You know, when, when, frankly, Native leadership is oftentimes complicit with these terrible negotiations. Let's keep in mind that the Obama administration, the Obama-Biden administration, had Native people, you know, on staff. I mean, they, they had, you know, uh, Kim Teehee and they had uh, um, Jody Gillette. So uh, when, when I... <laughs> When I see the enthusiasm over Deb Hallen now serving at the pleasure of Joe Biden, I just have to remind people that she's serving at the pleasure of Joe Biden and his track record on this and the Dakota Access Pipeline is is not very good. Well, and on top of that, we cannot ignore um, we cannot ignore that Deb Haaland is a part of the administration. We cannot ignore that her intention is to uphold settler colonialism. No matter how often she may say that, you know, like that she's indigenous and it's going to bring indigenous um, values into her own practice. The reality is that she cannot do that under the thumb of a settler colonial government. And to see how she's navigated, you know, previous uh, previous discussions about indigenous issues and how she intends to fight for indigenous issues i already have no faith in that and i'm thinking specifically of her of her hearings before she was before she even became secretary of the interior and she continued to say that she would follow biden's lead in terms of renewable green energy and that she'd continue to fall and follow biden's lead in terms of how she would navigate her position as uh, secretary of the interior and that was an incredibly successful campaign because people want to hear that the indigenous woman is going to follow the white man. You know, they don't want to hear that her intention is to, um, to you know, up, upheave the entire system. Uh, and, and even her response when asked uh, how she intended to navigate uh, natural res- the, the, the continued extraction of uh, natural resources, specifically for oil and gas. You know, she made it very clear that she believes that extractive industry is necessary for the U.S. economy. She said that. She said that. She believes that they're necessary for the U.S. economy and that we need to put in more effort into green renewable energy. And I'm putting that in quotes because, as we've discussed previously in the show, green renewable energy is not um, actually a a sustainable model in terms of um, fighting climate, uh, you know, these uh, these horrible climate changes. Um, But she has made it very clear that she will follow the Biden administration. And we cannot forget that the Biden administration and uh, including Harris, um, uh, Kamala Harris said in a tweet, um, infamously, if you will, that they will not ban fracking. This administration will not ban fracking. It has no intention to ban fracking. So for everyone who really followed the Biden-Harris train, um, you know, saying that, that that they were going to advocate for climate justice and advocate for, for climate change, you know, like, and really make these, you know, and follow scientists. They kept saying they're going to follow scientists. We already see that Halland, Harris, and Biden have actually, all they have done is maintain Trump's policies. And Trump's policies, all he did was maintain Obama's policies. And all of Obama maintained Bush's policies. Like, these are actually, nobody made any, 
nobody has ever, no administration has ever looked to upheave the previous administration. And that's how you know that both Republicans and Democrats are actually incredibly the same. And the intention is just to maintain the status quo. And the status quo is the maintenance of settler colonialism. Yeah, no, and I agree with everything you just said. I mean, uh, and and for us as Native people, we have to understand that that trying to join the other side to to somehow change the empire from within is is just an absurd proposition. You know, look, I know it is tough to stand up. It is it is tough to to resist all the time, but. You know, it's it's kind of you know, it's it's who we are, it, and you know, if we expect somebody else is going to take care of it for us, whether it's you know uh, an elected official or an appointed official, that's that's part of how we got into some of these situations in the first place. You know, there 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 definitely has been and and continues to be oppression, but there's also a, at a certain level, we have um, we've sat back. And, you know, the reason the Idle No More uh, movement started, you know, a couple of decades ago was because we were too idle. That was the whole thing. No, we're not. We will be idle no more. We are not going to be complacent. That's that was the movement. Right. And, and the, the fact that it, that it was called Idle No More suggests that we were idle for, for far too long. And, and this goes back to generations. And look, I'm not going to begrudge my ancestors and, and the people who came before me. But I'm also not going to pretend that everything was done uh, for us and everything was done correctly. And, See, and I'm going ch- to challenge. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, go, well, I'm just saying if we're going to defer um, all, um, you know, all of the direction that we go in now to a few, then then we have we've essentially created the opportunity for power to be abused. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, by all means. Yeah, of course. I have two. I have two points um, that I want to make. The first is that, you know, I applaud people, and I think that we must have a diversity of tactics. You know, we must have people who are infiltrating. We must have people that are on the outside. We must have people who are participating in all aspects of the destruction of settler colonialism. You have to. It's you know, like it, it is infiltration has been successful. You know, in, on a number of levels. And we should definitely see that a diversity of tactics is going to be the most successful in in the in the upheaval of the state, right? Um, however, this is not that. You know, like Deb Haaland has not infiltrated and with the intention to like, you know, make things messy. She hasn't gone in there with the intention of like really messing it up or like you know she's that's not. She's there to placate the the settler colonial narrative. She's there to to maintain the status quo, as I've said previously. So I think it's important, and, and I do not advocate for indigenous people becoming politicians. Let me let me make that incredibly clear. I think it's um, I think it's deplorable. But I do want to say that there is um, successfulness in infiltration if the intention is to go in there and like really like really go mess things up. So that was the first <laughs> thing that I wanted to say. The second thing I wanted to say though, is I'm gonna challenge what you're saying in terms of um, the Idle No More movement or in, in, in terms of like people not, um, indigenous people not participating um, as as actively in, uh, in I guess like social justice or indigenous issues um, or within community and, and not like fighting back as much, is that I definitely, I, I you know, 
sometimes I feel that way where I'm like, why are people not more angry or why are people not out there in the streets or, or fighting more? And I also have to remember that capitalism and colonialism have done an incredibly, have been incredibly successful in creating distraction. And if we think about the indigenous communities, we are constantly fighting. We are constantly in crisis. We are constantly in, uh, in survival mode. You know, our, our reservations as well as our communities are plagued with incredible violence, um, you know, uh, detrimental addiction, um, lack of resources, uh, an absurd level of poverty. Uh, you know, we're talking about, you know, people who are end and and on top of all of that, um, there's policy, strategic policy that has been created in order to keep indigenous people in this level of, of crisis, in this level of constant need of survival. And when you're, when you're struggling to just get food on your table or struggling to just be alive or, or struggling to, you know, to stay alive, because we can't forget the, the suicide rates within our communities are higher than any other demographic as well, and that we are targeted for murder and to go missing than any other community in, um, in this so-called country. When, when, and, when that coupled with assimilationist policies makes it incredibly difficult to to activate or to motivate because our entire intention is based on just trying to make it through the next day. And so for a long time, I was so critical being like, why are more people not, you know, like looking to, to radicalize and do all that thing? And I, and I have to remember that when you are in a moment of crisis and a moment of survival, when there is policy surrounding your life every day, um, forcing you to focus on capitalism and colonialism and forcing you in this in this very specific life way, it can be incredibly difficult to break out of that. And the reason that many of us have had the privilege to break out of that cycle is because we have privilege. So I definitely want to say that, like, I see people activating and it's really beautiful. And a lot of that has to do with social media. Um, really bringing to the forefront a number of these issues. But I did want to challenge what you were saying, because I feel as though there's there is this like, you know, this uh, like we're all just sitting back. And, and the reality is we're not sitting back. We're under the boot of colonialism and capitalism. And sometimes it's incredibly hard to get out from under that boot. No, and, and I don't mean to suggest that 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 everybody has been completely inactive, uh, you know, of and course. I think there has been solid movements. I mean, look, I'm in my 60s now, and and I think about the things that I've been engaged in for, you know, for for decades. I mean, I think about, you know, a small, relatively small group of of um, Mohawks uh, taking back land in the Adirondacks, and that community still survives today. I think about Alcatraz. I think about the occupation of the Interior Department, the Bureau of Indian Affairs. I mean, there, there have been, you know, any number of things that, that that people have stepped up, and and I guess what I'm seeing now, and you're right, it, part of it is is social media, um, but also part of it is, frankly, I think we have done a better job educating. There are more people who know about some of these um, these issues that we're fighting, whether it's mascot issue whether it's residential school uh you know kids whether you know missing and murdered indigenous women look you're right we are inundated with with any number of of fronts to be uh, you know battling against uh but you know i do i think there was you know something to the message you know idle no more and, and it was Absolutely. a call to action for those who had not been active. And look, even even though I wasn't that 
thrilled about 10,000 people showing up uh, at Standing Rock. There was a part of me that said, yeah, look at 10,000 people showed up at Standing Rock. And not all of them were native, but but just the idea that we are getting people more engaged. So, no, I, I and, and and frankly, I look at you and, and other people who are considerably younger than me as um, as the group that's going to do more than we did. I mean, that's you know, that's what I hope continues to be the you know, the the emphasis that that we we can not only expect, but encourage and empower those who come up behind us to take something farther than we have taken it. Well, and I, and I, I think about, um, you know, I think about like what has activated me personally to, to be someone who, who takes a lot of risk upon myself, um, because I also have a lot of privilege, but also who takes a lot of risk upon myself and who, who works within community specifically as an agitator to, you know, to really like bring to the forefront, a lot of these issues. And it, and I, I always am like, well, you know, what, what is, what has activated me personally? And it's the legacy. It's a legacy of indigenous agitators. And, and I hate the term activist, but I'm going to say it just because it's the easiest one to use. It's the legacy of indigenous agitators and activists that has that, that I am heeding that call. You know, like when I learned about the Oka crisis, which I didn't know about for a long time. And when I learned about it, which by the way, the anniversary is coming up on July 11th, um, mm-hmm. for the beginning, um, so folks, well, I assume we'll touch on that maybe next uh, next show. But, you know, it was it was learning about the trail of broken treaties. It was learning about um, the occupation at Alcatraz. And it was learning about um, and also, you know, Standing Rock was was so important um, in that activation as well. And yes, I, I you know, I agree with what you're saying. You know, I think a number of indigenous people um, have, were, have been critical of how Standing Rock has been handled and 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 how people showed up but also you know we can't we can't forget that that activation did lead and has led to the death of the pipeline you know so i mean we'll see what happens i don't trust that it's actually ever dead um i don't i don't trust any of that but like it's it was it is the legacy of those of the past that have activated us in the present to fight for the future that we know that we want and it is because people in our community, as you said, were idle no more. You know, it was those elders that were like, let's do this. You know, like, let's, I wanna, like, I we wanna, are, we I, are tired of it. It's my, my turn to push back. I don't think Dakota Access Pipeline is dead. I think the Keystone XL Pipeline is dead, but. Um, oh, no, no, no. Think... Let, me, let me clarify. I'm not saying, I'm saying that it is those who have activated that has led to a number of, who has led to yes. this change. I'm yes, not, yes. I in no way am saying, yeah, let me, thank you for that. <laughs> thank you for that clarification. I'm just saying that it is a beautiful moment to see that people coming together and working and, and that same work is now being done at line three. And that same work is now being done and still being continued to be done at with Suedin. And it's all of these um, interconnected narratives that have led to us um, being able to be successful in a lot of in a lot of these ways, but also we can't forget that just because the Keystone Pipeline is dead doesn't mean that you know they're still building the pipeline right now. Actually, if for those who are unaware, there are arrests happening right now in Minnesota as we speak, as land defenders are uh, occupying a site. So it's not like the fight is over or that the fight has been successful, but rather that there's a narrative of interconnectedness that has led to some success in terms of indigenous resistance against the state. Right. Yeah. And 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 again, I think, you know, we we live in a time where 
where it's e- easy for some to try to de- defer um, to leadership. And, and that's my concern about the attention and the euphoria over somebody like Deb Haaland. I mean, I, I did an interview this, this week and somebody was, you know, bringing, you know, bringing up, uh, you know, her and, and, and other, you know, some of the other iconic figures, I guess. And, and I get back to a place where I said, you know, you know, some of the, the things that we've accomplished, uh, we, we did it as a group, as, as a people, it wasn't, you, you couldn't attribute it to, to one individual or somebody sitting in, in, uh, in an office in a high place. Look, I, I even think about, you know, the, the, how much we've benefited from the Black Lives Matter movement and in the wake of the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. Um, we've been fighting for, for over 50 years to get the Washington football team to change its name. But it was only after enough consciousness over social injustice was raised, not necessarily by us. I mean, I think we're part of that narrative. But that's when, you know, when the powers that be told the Washington football team, look, we can't sponsor uh, a sponsor a team with a racial slur. So, I mean, I, I really have to give credit to to the people who get involved in these things and not necessarily to, you know, you know, to, you know, to the, the guy sitting behind the microphone or the or the or the person who's been able to get nominated for a position within, you know, within an administration. I think it's absolutely we have to be cautious. Yeah, I, I totally agree. We do have to be cautious. Um, I, I really appreciate what you're saying, John. I think it's so it's so important. Um, and, you know, as an indigenous anarchist, as someone who really identify, like I identify heavily as an indigenous anarchist, not as an anarchist, but as an indigenous anarchist. And one of the most like pivotal uh, principles to indigenous anarchism is decentralization. Uh, you know, we work in decentralized movements. We look to destabilize through decentralization. And that, of course, there are leaders and movements that you know, that we, we want to follow and that we want to and that we want to uplift their voice, but also how important it is just for community to activate without uh, without that kind of leadership. And I think that, you know, I think we also a lot of people look to Deb. And I'm going to come back to Deb Hallen because, you know, that's a lot of where this conversation is leading. And I think a lot of people look to Deb Hallen for that activation, um, uh, you know, and and I understand why, for those who participate in assimilationist politics, you know, re- that idea of representation and seeing, you know, an indigenous woman um, in, you know, in the White House, if you will, you know, like this indigenous woman participate, participating in these politics. A lot of people can feel like that's activating for their own uh, their own social justice career, their own radical education. And I find that to be so, so wildly disappointing because where do you find activation to be in community and to fight for the land in community and on the land? That's where you find it. You won't find it in the White House. You won't find it in Congress. You will not find it in the Senate. You won't find it in any way that the white settler narrative has, has told you you will find empowerment. The only place to find empowerment to fight for your community and the land is in community and on the land. Well, and, and, and I got to even, you know, lump in some of what is considered federally recognized tribal leadership in, in December. Oh, absolutely. As well. Because, I mean, 
even as I've listened to some of the things that that is you know kind of coming out um, this past week, uh, various people involved in uh, in the residential school uh, awareness movement, you know, a couple of Native scholars and uh, and and what they're hoping to to see out of you know Deb Halland's initiative to look into this residential school issue was was how much they were going to you know rely on on tribal leadership you know and and part of me that may, part of what makes me cringe is that the federal government essentially bestows through any number of means who that leadership is you know i'm not saying that they they you know they dictate who the leadership is although in some cases they certainly have um but you know look the the Tribal councils are you know, are run with with federal oversight. There, I mean, by some standards, you know, native territories can't even hold council if an Indian agent isn't available. I mean, it's it's unbelievably oppressive. I mean, it's it's bizarre because as as a as a Gunyagahag, as a Mohawk or a Haudenosaunee. We can, I, when I first heard this, that this still exists in in this in this you know, time. I said no, that can't be, and and then I found out that it's true that that it's not just you know that there's layers of bureaucracy that that affect how um, native territories are governed and and led, but but it's it's oftentimes very much dictated by the federal government. You know, I, I still put it down to grassroots. Look, the the more people, if you want to talk about residential schools, you need to talk about survivors. And victims of residential schools. You, it is. Don't just tell me. Talk to somebody who got elected and who the federal government recognizes as a a federally recognized leader of such and such. Yeah, you know, and oh God, I I have a. I mean, we've talked about it before on the show, but I have a huge bone to pick with. I think every tribal government, like every uh, federally recognized tribal government, in terms of how things are handled in terms of um, the policies that are adopted. I'm particularly critical of my my own nation's um, <laughs> organization, which is incredibly patriarchal, hierarchical, and just as, and Christian and maintains uh, the status quo of settler colonialism and has no intention to disrupt that. So I, I definitely think that we, we, you're right, we cannot ignore how um, tribal leader, leadership also, um, knowingly, I'm, I, I think a lot of people assume it's un, uh, like unbeknownst to them, but rather knowingly continues to uh, participate in the oppression of its own people. Right, right. Let's. Um, I, I do want to talk a little bit more um, since today, uh, essentially uh, today being July first, unless you're listening in Washington. Um, it, and it is it has been celebrated as Canada Day. It's it's almost like the Canadian version of Fourth of July because it happens over usually over the same holiday weekend. Um, and there have been plenty of calls to cancel Canada Day because of some of this revelation uh, of of these discovered remains in so many of these places. And, and, and I've heard numbers that are, that are topping over 1,500 um, confirmed uh, burials uh, of, of kids at these residential schools. And look, 
uh, you, you mentioned a report uh, that you were you were citing uh, last week um, that had so much information on the U.S. residential schools. Um, what was the name of that report? Oh, again? oh yeah. Hold on. Let me uh, let me pull up the acro- actual acronym. Give me one second. Um, well, there was a specific uh, name. Was it Miriam or? Um, I'm I'm trying to think of the. Re- And I guess part of what I want reason I was bringing it up is there's also a report on the Canadian side and that was done in like 1907 and it's called the Bryce report. And and I think when you realize how much is documented, it makes it even that much more absurd. I mean, the Bryce report came out in in 2019. I'm sorry, 1907. And in it documented that the mortality rate in residential schools was between 40 and 60 percent, and this is in this is in uh, in 1907. Oh, uh, it, it's, that, it is the Merriam report. I'm sorry, I Mer- misunderstood Merriam what report. you were asking. Yeah. I thought you were asking what Deb Haaland's um, initiative oh, was yeah. going to be. No, no, it is the Merriam report. Um, it was published in 1928, and it's called Merriam Report: The Problem of Indian Administration. Um, and it is available online uh, for free for those who are. You can literally just Google it and just click. Right, it's quite long, but. It talks about the missionary activities, um, the uh, it, it's an yes, but it's yes, the Merriam Report is what it's called. Well, and 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 again, so there's a there's a Canadian counterpart to that, although it's a, you know a, a decade or so earlier, which is again this Bryce Report, and I think it's on, it's online as well. But I mean, it it, it really does. It, it cites the atrocities. It says between 90 and 100 percent of the children that they that they looked at were showed signs of of abuse, whether it was sexual abuse or physical abuse or or simple malnutrition. Uh, you know, they when they talk about th- this mortality rate, you know, th- one of the the pushbacks was well, the mortality rate for children in in um, 1907 was pretty high anyway in Canada. It was uh, it was between 20 and 30 percent. But but that 20 to 30 percent mortality rate for children in Canada in 1907 that included infant mortality, which was the lion's share of children who died. They died in at birth. So to compare you know, this this 40 to 60 percent mortality rate at schools to what was considered the national mortality rate in Canada at the time, there's no comparison. It's not just that it was higher. It is dramatically higher. And they they were saying that even the tuberculosis that ran through these these schools, they said a native child was was between three and four times more likely to die because of the conditions, because of the the lack of health care. I mean, I think it's really important that as more and more information is going to going to come out about residential schools on the US side and the Canadian side uh, you know most of the stuff is pretty well documented it, it so it isn't like there has to be you know you know some sort of you know uh, these aren't this is archaeolog- archaeological digs i mean yeah some of that should happen in terms of determining not only the number of of children that that died at the hands of these schools or in custody of these schools but there should be some level of cause of death that that should be determined i mean and i'm not even suggesting that exhuming all of these uh, you know these bodies is the right course of action I, i i don't even i don't have a strong opinion about that but i i do know that other than returning you know, remains to 
to um, loved ones, which is it's kind of tough this far after the fact, but certainly to their homelands. Um, other than that, I, I would think cause of death should be the only other reason to do it. Otherwise, I mean, I'm not sure that I, I don't know what the good answer is to, to deal with, you know, with 715 or 751, you know, children being discovered at, at you know, on the on the grounds of one uh, one residential school. I mean, I'm not sure. Yeah. Well, you know, in, in case folks were, were unaware, um, another mass grave was found just uh, just two days ago, uh, or yesterday was it yesterday? Um, uh, a 182 um, unmarked mm-hmm. graves were found at the former residential school at, in Cranbrook, uh, British Columbia. Um, and I think that, and and for folks that are unaware, this is the graves were detected specifically using ground penetrating radar. Um, uh, and this is on the on the grounds of the St. Eugene's Mission School, which closed in 1970. So just like a little little background for folks who are who are catching up to this. So as of you know as of just uh, yesterday, we're talking about 1,325 uh, children's um, children, you know, who are un, who are unaccounted for, unnamed, unknown, and. If the residential schools were handled in any way that they were as, as they were here in the so-called United States, we know that this is a number of indigenous children from a number of indigenous nations, um, you know, that, that are all that are all together in this space and that it was done purposefully that way in order to to really break um, children away from community. So, I, you know, I think that the, the conversations in terms of like what to do next are are so difficult to unpack, also considering that protocol differs from nation to nation, so va- so vast, they're varied protocol, you know, in terms of bodies and death, um, you know, they, they are so very, very, very different from nation to nation. And you have a number of, of children um, all, all together in this space. So I think that, the, you know, this is just the, the tip of the iceberg, not just in the finding of these graves, but also the tip of the iceberg in trying to unpack what to do next. You know, is it, an, do we unearth, do we not? Do like do we bring them all home? What does bringing home mean? And you know, and I also don't want to ignore that that one of these um, one of these grave sites is uh, next to a a campground, a known campground. So you have people camping on top of on top of graves. So you know, and, and how do we and how do we reconcile the fact that you know that this land is still being used? Um, by people in, in such a such an ignorant way. Uh, so I think there's so much more to unpack in terms of like next steps. And and as we've spoken about in this show and in last week's show, you know, this same work is about to start here in in the, in the U.S. with this initiative that, that uh, Deb Haaland has proposed. And so now what does it even look like to be unearthing unearthing these graves? I think there, there's going to be so much more to talk about. And 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 not just in terms of logistics, but also in terms of healing from trauma. How are our communities going to handle um, the the continued fines, and how are we going to handle what to do with our with our with our children? Well, and and again, it's the part that concerns me as the United States starts to you know. Uh, look into this and Deb Allen and company, you know, I'm already hearing a lot of people trying to praise the Canadian Truth and Reconciliation Committee. Oh, God. And, and it was terrible. I mean, among the things that, that came out of 
you know, this um, process that, that ran from 2008 to 2015, there were 94 calls to action. And almost none of them have been followed through. So mm-hmm. how could you talk about the success of the Canadian Truth and Reconciliation Commission when when none of the advice that came from the commission has been followed? I mean, it, it's, it's, it really is absurd when when I start hearing Native people and, and, and again, from the so-called activist community, praising the uh, how Canada did it. And, and look, what we're, what we're seeing now out of this, uh, the, these discoveries, this is happening after this, I mean, this, this commission ran, ended in t- 2015. We're at 2021, and only now some of these uh, these these graves are being discovered. I mean, it shows you the failure, and and fr- frankly, it wasn't just a failure; it was a a direct decision not to determine uh, how many children were buried at these residential schools. They we all knew this these existed, but Canada said no, we aren't going to do that. So now, um, this was um, this started because. Uh, again, uh, Kamloops decided they were going to hire somebody to 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 investigate the um, the area. So this is being done outside of Canada's uh, wishes in terms of looking at this. And so when I hear this, and, and again, I keep hearing the same thing, this mention of cultural genocide, and that just drives me freaking crazy. And I and I listened. Yeah. I heard some some native voices on NPR this week talking about well, cultural genocide, or maybe just genocide. For one thing, to the extent that when the term genocide was developed, it it mentioned you know this this use of destroying culture as a part of genocide. It was genocide. It wasn't, okay, there's genocide and there's cultural genocide. Let me just read just so, so you can hear this. this. This is the international definition of genocide. Genocide means any of the following acts committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group, such as killing members of the group, causing seriously serious bodily harm or mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical disruption in whole or in part, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, forcibly transferring children from the group to another group. This, this reads like the residential school playbook. Every one of these things and more atrocities than these were, were committed at these residential schools. So the, the idea that, that somebody like Deb Hallen can't bring herself to call residential schools genocide, knowing what we already know. I mean, how many children do they have to discover before the word genocide doesn't have to have a precursor placed in front of it so people can feel like it's not as bad as it really is. And, you know, to, to piggyback off of that, we, we can't ignore, you know, that the 4th of July is coming up, you know, and yeah, everyone's going to be out here celebrating and it's going to be, you know, and there's really this like resurgence in, in patriarch in, in, uh, in patriotism, uh, you know, post 4th of July, when people feel really proud to be an American and, um, and part of that narrative, of course, is the erasure of black and indigenous trauma in order to maintain the, the mythos of a benign American history. It's, it's, it's necessary for settler colonialism to continue um, 
it to, to you know to gaslight black and brown people that this is not you know that, that the fourth of july it can be a, a celebration rather than um a mourning and i see the calls for today for canada day it's for for them to be canceled and uh and of course you know i i want fourth of july to be canceled uh but and I but I, I think that it's just such a it's there's an interconnected narrative here between what happens in the so-called Canada and what happens in the so-called US. And what we need to do as 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 community members is is not look to the Canadian um, settler colonial government for uh for what for guidance and successfulness for the Truth and Reconciliation Act in order for the US to act, but look to the indigenous communities and, and hear what they what they say, and the indigenous communities, the First Nations communities of so-called Canada, have expressed that the Truth and Reconciliation Committee um, and uh, and everything that fell out of that was not successful, was not good. Exactly. So why would ha- Deb Haaland or anybody else in the in the in, uh, in the federal government look to adopt something so so that was so vile and did not work? That didn't that the community exactly. does not support. And how does that fall into this narrative of the continuation of a benign American history? You know, those are the things that we really need to unpack. We're telling you that the 4th of July is genocide. We're telling you Canada Day is genocide. We're telling you residential schools are genocide. We're telling you that we're here and that the truth and reconciliation was was useless completely. And yet these federal governments continue to gaslight us and say, well, you know, we're going to we're going to move forward. We're going to we're going to continue with this. And it's just an abomination. I want to mention that, again, to remind people, if you've never read the Declaration of Independence, we are referred to as merciless Indian savages. And one of the biggest complaints and one of the driving forces to uh, to declaring independence from Great Britain was the fact that the, the King George was prohibiting expansion into native territories. That's it's one of the complaints that uh, that Jefferson lodged in his Declaration of Independence was that they were being prohibited from expanding territory, which means they were being prohibited by the king, at least during this time, from from taking native lands. And you know, so part of this Declaration of Independence that's being celebrated this this weekend is, is again, it's a genocidal document. It is one where we are, are referred to as the enemy, merciless Indian savages, and part of the design of the declaration was to go into taking more of our lands. And and that's that's clear. That's documented. Absolutely. It's there. You can't ignore it. It's part of American history. Yeah, it's again, but it's the part that gets ignored to to fulfill exactly what you're saying. I mean, there's there's such a romantic narrative that is constantly expressed and and there's never an attempt to be really truthful about it regan i want to thank you so much for uh, for helping me go through this i know we did have to do a little bit of rehashing but um just know that you know these holidays are not looked looked at or viewed the same by native people as they are by by non-native people it's just not the way it is i want to thank you for listening this is john kane with regan de and this is resistance radio we'll see you next week Yahweh.